Okay, well, we're continuing to talk about the Eastern Orthodox Church. I do have some note outlines if anybody wants one. Um, does, anybody, does anybody need notes? So we've talked about we've talked about the idea of Caesar Papism. Do you want one? Yeah. Caesar Papism being the um, the idea of the Caesar as the head of the church. Um, the the emperor is the head of the church, um, and um, and then we talked about. Uh, a couple of the disputes, Nestorianism and Monophysitism. Today we want to talk about iconoclasm, the iconoclastic controversy, which I think is uh, important to understand the Eastern Church and actually illustrates a lot of other principles as well. Um, the, the iconoclastic controversy has to do with the use of icons, as you might have uh, deduced from the name. Um, an icon is a, um, a picture used for... For, for worship purposes. Um, the Eastern Church um, the Eastern Church defends the use of icons primarily on the grounds that they are not carved images, which is what the second commandment explicitly prohibits. The second commandment prohibits that don't make any graven images or any likeness. And so they say, well, this isn't a graven image. It's not a carved image. It's a, it's a two-dimensional art um, uh, uh, work of art and therefore doesn't fall under the prohibition of the second commandment. The Reformed, uh, and a lot of people at the time, actually, this is what this controversy is about, argued that that's, that's to have a pretty superficial reading of the commandment. It's, it's any likeness, any likeness or anything, you know, it's the, it's the whole big issue that we don't make visual representations of God and we don't use visual representations of anything at all in aids, as aids of worship, which is something we all, of course, um, you know, in the Reformed world believe. Actually, pretty much all Protestants used to believe that, although a number of them no longer do, um, sadly. Um, yeah, this Rod? This stretch here, but wouldn't the cross hanging behind the little thing up there be a visual representation? That's why we cover it up. <laughs> um, so, and, and there's an argument that there are reformed people who would be opposed to any crosses at all um, in any use, in any context there are others that say no, a cross as a simple identifier of a building which is a Christian church is acceptable but it, ought never, it should never be used as an object or focus of worship okay. I would fall into that second camp I don't have an objection to crosses per se I don't, I don't think that any, any, a cross simply as a symbol representing Christianity, I don't have an objection to. But up there, above the pulpit, in this very prominent position, it so easily becomes an object of attention and devotion um, that, um, that we covered up. I've actually been wondering why it was always covered. Yeah, that's, never that that's just why. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, Same deal, like that kind of it can be a representation, or even like a cross tattoo, or some of the things you might see Christians do. 
Uh, it's a fine line in my, in my mind. I, I, you see people have an attitude. I've asked people, I said, why do you wear a cross necklace? You know, why do you wear that necklace? And the way that they explain it is that it's almost like a magical talisman. That it's like it protects them from demonic forces, having that cross. And, that's, and that is an absolute violation of the second commandment and a couple of other ones too. Um, it's a superstitious kind of, you know, um, or people will hang crosses on their walls in the house for the same kind of thing. Now, if somebody just wanted to say, I just want to identify myself as a Christian, you know, um, then, then I would be more reluctant to condemn. I wouldn't say, ah, you know, that's kind of let your conscience be your guide on that. A cross tattoo, um, I, you know, I, again, I'd want to, I'd want to know motives and so forth, but um, dad would say about tattoos in general, he said, well, if they are a sin, they're just a little one, <laughs> so, which is kind of a silly, because there, there's, obviously, there's no such thing as a little sin, but um, he just, in his mind, there were more important things to be worried about, and I definitely agree with that. Um, so... Yeah, yeah, I, I, th- I think in general, broadly speaking, we're people of the word. We don't use pictures, visual representations as aids in worship, as aids in devotion. We don't make up our own ways of relating to God. And I think that to me is the big picture. The big picture is we don't make up our own ways of uh, you know, God's given us plenty. God's given us plenty to do. He's given us ways to experience his glory and his goodness. He's given us ways to trust him, to rely on his grace and protection. Um, he's given us, uh, he's given us, he's taught us his worship and all those things. And, and uh, I think a lot of what we've been uh, talking about in terms of tabernacle worship and how it was all reflective of the pattern from heaven and um, all of those things really goes to that point. God gives us, and yeah, in the New Testament, it's not as detailed, but it's still very much. He, he gives us the principles of worship, ways we relate to him, and we don't make up our own. And so, and so I would, you know, if somebody was considering, you know, getting a cross tattoo or something like that, I would just, I would just caution them to say, uh, you, you know, and there's a whole other question of tattoos in general, which is kind of beyond the scope of this, but... Um, a, a, you know, a cross tattoo or a religious tattoo in general, I would want to say, now people might have a Bible verse tattooed on there, you know, or, a, or something like that. And, and it's not bad, you know, it's not wrong. Um, but what are you trying to accomplish? You know, it's, it's something that's going to remind you of something or it's going to keep something in front of you. Okay, you know, I could get behind that, you know, something like that. Um, but um, yeah. Uh, you know, again, to submit to the ways God has given us to experience him, worship him, glorify him, learn about him, and so forth. Okay, so the iconoclastic controversy in general. Um, this all took place in the 6th, no, the 7th and into the 8th century. Um, really beginning with a man named um, Leo III. Um, Early on, the church in general did not use images of Jesus or of, of, of God, did not, did, certainly did not venerate images of saints. Um, given the paucity and um, uh, spottiness of our records for the, first, for the second century especially, we're just not really sure when they started to gain in a little bit of prominence. But certainly by the time the Roman Empire became Christian, at that time, images... 
images became, started to be used pretty widespread in, in churches. But there wasn't a lot of thought out theology behind it yet. It was just, in a lot of ways, it was just a lot of pagans coming into the church and bringing in a lot of pagan practices. Um, and, and a lot of churchmen kind of well-intentioned to say, hey, let's kind of bring them along, you know. And so they're used to using statues and images of their gods, and so we'll just let them keep doing that, but we'll say this, is not, this isn't Zeus, this is Peter, or this isn't Hera, this is Mary, you know. And so they kind of did some of that. Uh, and I think in a lot of cases, a well-intentioned way of trying to bring these pagan believers along, but it had a lot of uh, downstream negative consequences. Um, so the church in both the East and West, uh, in the West, Augustine said, Augustine was the one who first proposed the idea that the, second com- the first and second commandment as we understand them, the first one being, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and the second one being, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images or any likeness of anything, and so forth. Those weren't two separate commandments. Those were just one commandment. So they number them differently. And then they have ten, by having ten, they split the tenth commandment into two. That the not coveting your neighbor's house is one thing, but then not coveting your neighbor's wife or the other things he has is another thing. Um, which I think we all, it's a pretty artificial distinction. Um, but what it lets them do is it lets them say they're, the, the, the not making any graven images or just not making any graven images of other gods. They kind of conflate the first and second. Um, the, as I said, the Eastern Church's understanding of that was never, they, didn't, they number the commandments just like we do, uh, the Protestants, but what they do is they, they make the point that what they use are not graven images, what they use are icons, two-dimensional representations. Well, in the, like I said, in the 7th century, there was a man named Leo III. Um, he, uh, uh, six, six, like 615 AD or something like that, he, he wasn't Greek, he was Syrian, and, and what was really relevant about, uh, he had grown up, he grew up in, a, in an area which had come under the attack of the Muslims. One of the major criticisms that the Muslims use against Christianity in the East, well, and in the West too, Christianity was obviously corrupt and apostate because the Bible so clearly forbids images, and yet the church uses all these images. Um, the Muslims are rabidly against images of God. And in fact, many conservative sects of Islam are against any images of anything for any purpose at all. Like there was no artwork, no paintings of people or, or, or animals or, or anything. That's why when you, see, when you see Muslim worship spaces or even Muslim houses and things, they often will have very intricate, abstract, geometrical patterns and things like that. Their mosaics and tile work can be really, really beautiful. But in general, especially in conservative, you're not going to see visual representations of anything um, because they take that. E- so, so this was an apologetic the Muslims used against the Christians and actually a pretty fair one, <laughs> you know, um, and, uh, and Leo III might have been pretty sensitive to that, um, might have been a big part of what drove him. So he, he really um, uh, opposed the use of images in churches, destroyed a lot of imagery, a lot of icons, um, and, um, and, it, and, it, and it made a big, big controversy. Um, the monks, most of the monks in the church and a lot of the lay people 
um, really liked the image. The, the lay people did. They they would have little wooden carvings and things of their favorite saint or whatever, and they would just kind of hide them away when the when the iconoclasts came to town. But they but they you know took them out of churches and everything. Uh, Leo the Third's son Constantine the Fourth was even more aggressive. Um, he executed several monks who uh, taught the, the right use of images. He had one monk whipped to death publicly in the Hippodrome in Constantinople. Um, and this really illustrates a good point. Um, I would have sided with Leo III and Constantine IV on the actual issue, um, but you see how when the state gets involved in enforcing right doctrine, how the results are obviously the opposite of what you want. Um, the, the way that they went about it uh, badly alienated the people and the monks. Um, the idea, you know, the idea of a monk being publicly whipped to death um, for, for teaching the use of icons, it appalled a lot of people. And, but that's what the state does. I mean, that's the tools the state has. The state is force. The state is the sword. And so when the state uses the sword to try and enforce right doctrine, well, you all usually end up with results like this. Um, so it was a raging controversy. Now, now Constantine IV's son was named Leo V. Leo V was married to a woman named Irene. Leo V died young and... Uh, and his son, Constantine V, or was it Constantine VI now? Anyway, Constantine VI was very young and was not able to take the throne yet. And so Irene served as a regent. She was known as Empress Irene. Um, she was in favor of the icons. And, so, and we don't know her reasoning. We don't know a lot about why exactly. But she started promoting the use of icons again. Um, and they kind of view her as a hero for that. Now, Irene was no hero. Um, uh, when her son, that she was serving as regent for, Constantine V turned about 26, Constantine started saying, hey, well, I'm old enough now. I should be the emperor. Shouldn't I take over? And so she had him blinded, um, put his eyes out so that she could continue to be the emperor. Um, and uh, so piety was probably not her major. It was probably something more like she recognized the fact that the people in general wanted the icons. And it would be one, you know, it'd be one thing to engage on a process of teaching and educating and bring people around, but the way they approached it all just had the, the, the opposite effect. Um, another, after, after Irene died and another man was made the emperor and then he died young and his mother became the regent or his wife became the regent, she again, for reasons which are obscured to us, restored all the icons. Uh, went back to saying, no, the icons are good. And by that time, they'd actually, as often happens through controversy, they'd actually developed um, a whole theology of icons and what they're actually for. And, the idea, and it has to do with the, the, the unique focus in the Eastern Church on the idea of deification. They teach that the human being takes on divine properties in salvation, to become deified. Now, to generally to us in the West, that sounds, you're saying we become gods. And they don't quite mean that, um, almost. But what they mean is that, that God has, God has his, his essence 
They just divide between the essence of God and the energies of God. The essence of God being who he is in his core nature. The energies of God being what he does. And that we become united to the energies of God in salvation. So that the physical, you know, a human, a created thing can take on divine properties. And as a demonstration of that, they point to the Mount of Transfiguration. The Mount of Transfiguration is a big, big deal in Eastern theology, more so than it is to us in the West. Um, And to them, what happens at the Mount of Transfiguration is that the glory of God actually occupies this physical space and... The glory of that God then the glory of God then would transmit to the saints themselves, to the apostles who saw the glory of Christ, then they themselves later on could reflect that glory as well, like the moon reflects the glory of the sun, and that others who viewed them in faith could also receive that glory. So that an icon, which is a physical created thing, which was painted properly by a, by a uh, you have to actually be ordained in the Eastern church to paint an icon. You can't just, not just anybody can paint an icon. There is an office of the church that paints these pictures. And, and the, the, the man who paints them in faith and the person who views them in faith, the glory of God can be transmitted through the icon to the viewer who views it in faith, so that the icon actually becomes a required means of grace in the Eastern Church. And if you've ever been in a, if you've ever seen it, uh, 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 an Eastern Orthodox church, they're very, very ornate. You have lots and lots of, and actually the way they're laid, they're laid out in a cross shape, and at the back, the top part of the cross is back where the, um, the sacrament is actually prepared, and that, and that, back part of the of the church is obscured by a screen of icons and that's deliberate because the screen it's the idea that the glory of god can't be gazed at directly by us but that it is transmitted to us through these spiritual windows right so that we can actually participate in the glory of god by worshiping the icons that's roughly I'm not Eastern Orthodox, but as I understand it, that's roughly what they believe. Um, so, uh, so, so that, so that the irony of it, through the icon controversy, the use of icons became deeply, deeply embedded in Eastern piety. It becomes essential to what it means to be Eastern Orthodox. An icon is a holy object. It's, again, you can't just go paint an icon yourself. You can't, like print one off on your computer or something. An icon is a sacred object made by an authorized um, icon creator of the Eastern Church. So, um, any, um, any questions about any of that? Yeah, Sam. It almost sounds like they're... Uh, you know, trying to re- replace the Holy Spirit or you know, put the Holy Spirit up for sale. In a well, they, of course, would find that very offensive that yeah. you said that, but um, uh, I, I think there's some truth in that, yes. Um, the whole... 
It's interesting, at the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus, you, you remember the story, Jesus went up to pray, he met with Moses and Elijah, he comes down from the mountain, he's shining, right, with the glory of God. And do you remember what Peter said? He said, let's make tabernacles to them. Let's make three tabernacles, one to you, one to Moses, one to Elijah. Why did he do that? Here's this, and because the immediate thing that happens after that is that there is a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son. Hear ye him. Hear him. They see this. God in his grace gives them a glimpse of this heavenly glory. Peter wants to immediately fix it in place. Right? So that he can experience it whenever he wants to. Make a tabernacle. Make a, make a dwelling place. Make a tent where this can be. Um, Peter's immediate response is, and that is, and that is idolatry. Idolatry is when we try to control the way that we experience the divine. The, he gets this glimpse of glory. He wants to fix it in place immediately. That's his first instinct, right? But what's the, what's the word from heaven say? Hear him. I remember, I think it was Mark Dever, uh, I, I think, uh, who said, it might have been Stephen Lawson, but one of those guys, he said, he said it shows that this is, this is the age of the ear. It's not the age of the eye. In God's wisdom, this is the age when we experience God primarily through the word. Now, God can do whatever he wants. God can give visions, and he does sometimes, but that's up to him. We have the word, right? Uh, the, 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 I think the Eastern Orthodox, as, as big a deal as the Mount of Transfiguration is to them, I think they fundamentally misunderstand the point and fall into the error of Peter. They want to fix it in place. They want to control it. So you can go buy it, right? You can go, go to the marketplace and buy a, an icon that will then give you the experience to, 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 to give you the opportunity to experience the divine like kind of whenever you want to instead of, instead of rec- this recognition that, you know, we hear the word, we believe, in faith, we wait. You know, the Christian life is about waiting in a lot of ways. Um, and, and we get impatient. We want to have it now, you know, and, um, and I think that's what, exactly what they're doing. But it is interesting to note that um, now during this, in the, it's funny, in the, Eastern, in the Western church at the time, Emperor Constantine, who, uh, who remember was crowned emperor by the Pope in 700 AD, this was right at the time that Empress Irene was on the throne. Um, uh, Constantine apparently seriously entertained the, the possibility of marrying Princess uh, Empress Irene and in that way joining the two empires. Never did happen. Um, but Constantine actually became, when he became familiar with the iconoclast controversy, Constantine became very persuaded of the iconoclast position himself and sponsored books to be written um, attacking the use of pictures and icons and um, and there was one, there was one um, monk, one famous monk in, in, in France at the time, in Francia, um, who, was, who wrote, a Claudius, I think his name was, who wrote voluminously against the use of icons and, in, and attacked Augustine's division of the commandments and in pretty much echoing 
all the arguments of the later Reformed. And the funny thing was, was when the Reformed came along and taught this, and the popes and everybody were like, this is crazy, this has never been said, you know, you're just making this all. And they very gleefully found the writings of Clotin and brought them out. No, this has all happened before, actually. And, and uh, these arguments were made a long time ago. Um, it was actually part of the reasoning behind the crowning of Emperor Augustine as the Holy Roman Emperor. Some would say, well, isn't the Eastern Empire the natural, since the Western Empire fell, isn't the Eastern Empire, the, that was their argument, was we're the continuation of Rome, not Charlemagne, not the Franks. Um, but their argument, uh, the Pope's argument was, was that since the, emperor, since the chair of the Empress was chair of the Emperor was currently occupied by a woman who could not be any kind of real ruler, therefore the, the throne of the Emperor was vacant, and so it was fine for, for Charlemagne to be. The, the, Eastern, the Eastern Empire did not think much of that argument, but anyway, that's what they said. So you kept saying Constantine, and then you said Augustus. Did you mean... Was I saying Constantine when I was talking about the emperor in the West? Yeah. No, I meant Charlemagne. I'm sorry. Yes, thank you for pointing that out. I've been meaning Charlemagne. That's, I'll redo the whole talk, but with Charlemagne instead. No. It was Charlemagne in the West who was very convinced of the arguments, of the iconoclast arguments. And it was Charlemagne, Charles the Great, who, almost, who was considering marrying Empress Irene at one point. Yes. Thank you, Titus. Yeah. Hmm. I felt like all the way along there was I was confusing something. Now I know what it was. Territorial gains. Um, the Eastern Church successfully evangelized the Balkan Peninsula by the 9th century. The, Balkan, the Balkans, that's um, what's now um, Romania, Hungary, um, uh, Yugoslavia, uh, Czechoslovakia. There is no Czechoslovakia any, anymore. Oh, there is no Yugoslavia anymore, for that matter, either. Um, that's right. And, and that whole that whole Balkan era, right in there. That was those were um, that actually had been previously Christianized in the in the earlier part of the empire. But then that part of the empire was overrun when the empire was all falling apart. That that part of the empire was overrun by. Huns, Slavs, Avars, and Mygars, which are all barbarians, um, horse archers, a lot of them. We talked before about the, tr- the trouble that the em- empire usually had with um, horse archer civilizations. But they pushed the Christian civilization out, but then the, the, um, but then the church re-evangelized them. Part of that was because the Eastern Empire reconquered a lot of that territory. Uh, the Emperor Justinian... Fascinating, fascinating guy in the 6th century. Uh, That was probably actually the glory of the Byzantine Empire came after the fall of the Western Empire um, in the days of Justinian. Um, In the 6th, they they retook a lot of the territory. They retook most of North Africa. They retook part of Southern Italy, um, which had been conquered by the the Normans until later. Then they reconquered it, and then the, the, the Muslims conquered it later. They pushed up far into Europe, um, pushed back the pushed back the Persians. Um, Justinian was famous for his law code. He rewrote the law code of, of Byzantium. Uh, uh, in a, uh, uh, part of it was his fascinating wife um, Theodora. Uh, he had a really his wife was a um, an actress, um, which in those days meant prostitute. 
Um, and I, it's kind of vague about how Justinian got connected with her in the first place, but he ended up marrying her, and she was, she was, a, she was a devout Christian and a major champion of the rights of, of women and children and the poor and so forth, and really advocated. It was a lot of what Justinian's law code was written, a big part of the advance, was a much more humane and Christian way of, of treating slaves and women and so forth. Uh, than had previously been the case. Uh, so Justinian's law code, he's, he's famous for that, um, and greatly expanded the, um, uh, the empire in a lot of ways. Um, and so that led to the re-Christianization, re- we said the Balkans, so that, so that when we think of even today, we think of a lot of those countries, um, they, they were very, actually a lot of them have become Catholic now, and the reason was, was because they were very Eastern Orthodox, but then the Muslims later on conquered them all, and then Christianity from the West pushed them back out later on, and so that it was a Western Christianity that ended up um, pushing them out. Um, there, was a, there was a strong rival in that area, the Bulgarian Empire, which arose for... Uh, it, was a, it was a strong rival to the Eastern Orthodox Church. It was Christian, but it was not connected to the Eastern Orthodox Church, religiously. But the biggest gain was Russia. Um, uh, what was known as Kievan Rus, which is, which is based in Kiev, what's now Ukraine, was the original home of the Russian, um, the Russian people. Um, and uh, they were driven out of, of that area by the, by the Mongols, the invasions of the Mongols. Uh, well, before that happened, though, the Kiev at a certain point decided they were pagans, and they decided at a certain point that they needed to kind of get with the times and adopt a new religion. Paganism was old news, you know, and so they wanted to adopt one of these new religions. Um, they, they rejected Islam... Because Islam forbade alcohol. I mean, you know, that wasn't going to work for Russians. Um, they rejected Latin Christianity because it was dull. Um, they rejected Judaism because what kind of God lets their people lose their own land? Which is ironic given future history of the Russians. And, but when they went to Byzantium, they just, it was like being in heaven. They're just the glory of the Byzantine worship just awed them. And so they became Byzantine. Um, they were driven out of, of the Kievan area by the Mongol invasions of the 13th and 14th centuries, migrated north, established, an emperor, established a kingdom around Moscow. Um, by the way, when you consider that the original home of the Russian people was Kiev, which was around where Ukraine is now, you can see why that might color some of the discussions now about the Ukrainian war and about whose homeland that really is and so forth. Um, those things can get complicated. But, um, but they fought hard. And the Mongols, see, the Mongols over time became Muslim. And, and the Turks also, the, 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 the Russian really their Christianity became a major part of their identity as a bulwark against the Muslims. And they fought the Muslims for centuries. Um, and so that when Constantinople fell to the, to the Muslims in the 15th century, 1453, um, 
In the Russians' mind, that meant they were the natural successors of Byzantium. They, were, they referred to themselves as the Third Rome. Many Russian Orthodox continue to do so. So that Russian Orthodoxy to them is the church. It's the, it was Rome, and then it was Constantinople. When Constantinople was made the capital of Constantine's empire, then when Constantinople fell, the next center of Christianity was Moscow. Um, so that... So that emperors of, of Moscow, for years and years, emperors of Russia, saw themselves as the defenders of Christianity. They saw themselves as the defenders of Christendom. That was very much part of, their self, of the, the self-identity of the emperors and of the people themselves. Um, and, and that continues today. Uh, you know, again, looking at, 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 at Vladimir Putin and his, his whole view of geopolitics, his view of this war... His view of he sees himself, he presents himself, and a lot of the people of the Rus- Russia really see him as the defender of Christendom against the decadent, immoral, godless West. Um, so, you know, now I don't think Putin's a good guy at all. I think Putin's a dictator who murders people he doesn't like, but Russian emperors have always done that. Um, so... Uh, that that might help you actually understand like the current conflict a little bit better. He he's he, uh, Putin has closely aligned himself with the Russian Orthodox Church, and the Russian Orthodox Church has seen a huge revival um, during his time in office. I think I mentioned earlier, like at the fall of the Soviet Union in '92, something like 15 percent of the population saw that, identified as Russian Orthodox, and that number is like 75 or 80 percent today. Uh, so the Russian Orthodox has seen a huge revival. Now, again, how much of that is legitimate Christianity, I'll leave for someone else to judge. It's more a political, geopolitical kind of thing to them, a cultural. And, um, you know, when you consider that Russia still has one of the highest rates of abortion and alcoholism and things like that, uh, you know, I'm not sure viewing them as the champions of Christendom is the right way of looking at them. But it's sure how they see themselves. Um, so anyway... Russia. So Russia was a was a really big deal, the biggest the biggest success, and and in a lot of ways, for a lot of times, what kept them alive, uh, kept Eastern Orthodoxy alive, especially after the Muslims overran most of the rest of the Eastern Orthodox territory. Now the East West Schism, meaning the split between the East and the West, when they formally said. Um, it, it goes all the way back to the Roman Empire itself. And the division under, under Constantine, the division, or actually Diocletian, Constantine's predecessor, the division of the empire into the eastern and western, because the church was so closely, emphasized, uh, uh, so closely um, aligned with the empire, the, the, the church followed that split as well, so that there was the eastern church and the western church. And the Pope of Rome always argued that the Western Church was supreme over, over all, and, the, and the, the, the Eastern Church and the Patriarch of Constantinople always argued, no, we're co-equal. There's no one leader over it all. It's, there's the, the different patriarchs of the different apostolic churches are all um, equal. Um, and so they argued and they fought, and there were a lot of theological issues. We talked earlier about the proper proper observance of Easter. Um, there were other issues like clerical celibacy. The, uh, the priests were not required to be 
um, celibate in the, in the Eastern Church. Um, they still aren't. They, they were in the Western Church. Um, and there were other things. There were territorial conflicts. The Balkans were, we talked about the Balkan Peninsula. That was a major area of, of conflict when the, um, the, attempts of the attempts of each church to kind of claim that as their territory. Um, in 1054 is when the schism finally became complete. Um, Pope Leo IX sent um, legates to Constantinople in that year to assert his claim of primacy based partly on the donation of Constantine. You remember we talked about that before, that document that said that Constantine had donated um, uh, most of the Western church, most of Western Europe to the church. And so partly on the basis of that, they claimed that they had uh, primacy over the whole church. Um, but the patriarch rejected that claim, and Leo therefore excommunicated the patriarch, excommunicated the patriarch of Constantinople. Now it's funny, that had actually happened before. Both, of, both sides had excommunicated the other before, but nobody really paid a lot of attention to it. Some, you know, people did stuff. and So it would be a situation where the Pope would excommunicate him and everybody would go like, oh, okay, I guess. And then that Pope would die and a new Pope would come along and everybody would just kind of pretend it never happened. Um, that happened kind of a lot. <laughs> so, so when it first happened in 1054 again, everybody just sort of thought, oh, okay, kind of like they had in the past. But this time it stuck. This time both popes and their successors all took the stand that the other side was apostate and the other, other side was no true church because their church had excommunicated them. Because the, 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 the patriarch of Constantinople responded in kind. He excommunicated the pope. And so they both viewed each other as false churches. And for whatever reason, the time was just right. This time it really stuck. Um, Primacy, like I said, was the big issue. Basically, it was, it was, a, it was power. Who had the power? Um, there were theological issues, and one of the main theological issues was what, what is known as the filioque clause, um, which is the, a clause from the Nicene Creed. Filioque in Latin means and the Son. You know how we say, I, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. Right? So when we say proceeds by the Father and the Son, that and the Son is the filioque clause. That clause was not in the original Nicene Creed. The original Nicene Creed read, I, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. The procession of the Spirit. The question is, does the, 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 does the Spirit proceed from the Father or from the Father and the Son? Um, now, that was a huge argument. You might not think that, was a, that should be such a big deal. Um, there are good theological reasons for believing that it is actually a pretty big deal. Um, uh, one medieval scholar, when asked... What was, what was the punishment specifically for um, clerics who apostatized and went to hell? He said, their punishment will be to read all of the documents ever written on the filioque controversy. Uh, because it was voluminous. <laughs> um, 
And, and the, 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 the theolog- I'm not going to get into all of the theological ramifications. They are there and they are significant. But the issue, again, wasn't really theological. The issue was power. The Eastern Church's argument was, what, see, what happened was, it was written originally with the, uh, the, with the filioque clause out of it. Some Western theologians thought that that was an imbalanced way of saying it, was that the scriptures clearly, pretty clearly seem to say that the spirit proceeds from both um, together. And the argument basically is, in John 13 and 14, at one point, Jesus says, I will pray to the Father that he will send the Spirit to you. And then later in the next chapter, he says, I will send the Comforter to you. So that there's a dual procession. And then that has to do with your view of the Trinity and their their economic operations and all sorts of things. Um, But the major issue was the Western Church put the clause in without holding a council and without consulting the Eastern Church. They just, some, some... the Western Church has always been way more independent and kind of freewheeling and, uh, than the Eastern Church. That's even in the Middle Ages, even way before the Protestant Reformation. There was a reason why the Protestant Reformation came out of the Western Church and not the Eastern Church. Um, it's because the character of the Western Church has always been different. And so some theologians and some churches just started using the filioque clause. And then at a certain point, a pope authorized it. They said, yeah, that's, that's right, and so that's the right use of the, of the creed. Later on, when the, um, when the Protestants came around, I've heard, I've heard Eastern, I, I have an Eastern Orthodox friend who, uh, who accused Protestants of venerating the Pope clearly because when they weren't willing to buck the Pope on the filioque clause when it came to their own versions of the creed, which is, I mean, they bucked the Pope on all sorts of things, including calling him explicitly the Antichrist. So no, they, they looked at the filioque clause and decided that it was theologically accurate, and that's why they retained it in the Protestant versions. But, um, but the Eastern Church has always had a huge problem with the fact that the Western Church inserted that into the creed without consulting the Eastern Church, without having a council, just did it on their own. Um, but then the Western Church has never acknowledged their need to um, consult the Eastern Church because by then they, you know, they they viewed the Eastern Church as in rebellion against the rightful authority of the Pope anyway. And so, anyway, that was a big, probably the number one theological issue was that there was also clerical marriage. Um, there was the whole issue of Caesaropapism, which we've talked about. But the result of it at the end was that the two sides split viewed each other as apostate. Before that, they'd always had problems with each other, but they still acknowledged each other as true churches. After that, they didn't. That was, so that was 1054. Um, that played into events later. There was a, the decline of the Byzantium. Byzantine Empire had a resurgence in the 10th and 11th ter- century. The, the, the Muslim Empire at the time, the Abbasid Empire was fracturing and was decadent and unable to control a lot of their territory and Byzantium regained a lot of territory during that period. Um, but they started experiencing di- uh, great difficulties again in the 11th century, not, not least of which was uh, severe plagues that hit them. Um, loss of territory, the rise of the Seljuk Turks, which was a, the Turks were a new vital, you know, a new tribe that had taken on uh, uh, Islam and was uh, uh, a very, very energetic enemy, captured a lot of territory, 
Um, they pushed back across Asia Minor and ended up capturing a lot of Asia Minor. And um, then in 1180, now we talked before, you remember when we were talking about the, the, the Crusades and we talked about the sack of Byzantium during the Fourth Crusade in 1254. Um, and that was, that was a huge blow. Uh, that they established a Latin Empire that went on for a while, and then they left, and the and the Byzantines took back over. But Byzantium never really recovered from the sack of of Byzantium by the Crusaders, the Western Crusaders in 1254. Um, now, when histories talk about that, Western civilization has this sort of unique self-criticizing strain to it that you don't see in a lot of other places. And so when the Fourth Crusade is discussed and the horrible sack of Byzantium by Christian crusaders, what rarely is mentioned is the massacre of the Latins that happened in Byzantium about 70 years before that in 1180. In 1180, a, uh, an emperor arose to power. See, there were a lot of Western Christians that were living in Byzantium in the 12th century. They were traders, merchants. So Byzantium was a great big city, right? So there were a lot of, um, especially Florentines and Venetians and, and many others. And uh, an emperor was trying to consolidate his power in 1180. And, and by way of doing so, he whipped up a lot of hostility and scapegoating of Western Christians. The, the, the um, schism had happened, and so they were all godless followers of the Pope. And he whipped them up into a frenzy with, with the result that several tens of thousands of Christians, Western Christians, were massacred in basically riots that happened in, um, in, in Byzantium. Um, so that happened and that led directly. So then when the crusaders came and they were trying to, they had all this fresh in their mind, of course, that massacre it doesn't excuse what the crusaders did, but it does put it into, you know, the, the Byzantines were hardly like innocent, you know, that hadn't done anything. They, they'd had plenty of blood on their own hands. Um, but anyway, after that happened, uh, you know, Byzantium, as I said, never really recovered. Um, the, the, the Turks continued to push across and push across. They also conquered the other side. They conquered a lot of the, um, uh, the Balkan Peninsula, what's now Hungary and Romania and so forth, were all captured by, uh, by the Turks, so that Byzantium was surrounded on all sides. They had huge walls and impenetrable defenses, but their population was collapsing. And, and um, so when... Mehmed II, Mehmed the Great, uh, came to the walls of Byzantium in 1053, or no, it was 1452, I think is when he began the siege. Um, and he had a, there was a, there was a Hungarian man, what was that guy's name, who had designed this huge cannon, this, these huge bombards. And he'd actually brought it to, brought it to, the, to Constantinople first, but they couldn't afford to pay him what he was asking. And so he went to Mehmed instead. And they used those cannons to batter down the walls of, um, batter down the walls of Constantine, uh, Constantinople. Uh, Constantinople, uh, Mehmed probably had something like 300,000 troops with him at that time. And Constantinople was defended by maybe 10,000 at that point. Um, so they just didn't have the manpower anymore. Um, the last emperor... The emperor, what was his name? Um, Constantine the Eleventh. 
kind of a dramatic story. He, you know, he organized the defenses and rallied the troops. And he was, seemed like a pretty good guy, actually. And, um, and at the very end, realizing that the city was fallen, that they couldn't possibly win, he tore off his imperial insignia so that the, emperor, the, the Turks wouldn't know that it was him. And he flung himself into hand-to-hand combat. And that was the last anybody ever heard of him. So, and that was the end of the Byzantine Empire, which, as I said, was the end of the Roman Empire, which by that point, 1453, had been around for over 1,500 years. Any questions about any of that? Titus was doubting something I just did. I make another mistake? About that, yeah. I mean, if you look at Rome as a whole, all the way back to the kingdom and the republic, of course, it goes way further. But as far as the actual empire, that would have been... Right, yeah. Any other questions? Like I said, that is a broad overview of Eastern Christianity. Um, There's tons more that could be said, but some of those controversies do get you a flavor of, of the sorts of things that animated them, hopefully. Well, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your blessings and mercies. Thank you for uh, your goodness and grace to us. Thank you for the history that we've preserved. And Lord, we pray that we would learn from it and grow from it. And those that have gone before and struggled for the faith against error and um, in right ways and wrong ways. And, and Lord, we pray that you, we would learn from those things and continue to contend for the faith ourselves in our own day and time. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.